Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Witches of Scotland podcast. We're going to open up with some kind of reader's mail, I suppose it is, in a very social media way on the back of our episode Julian Goodair, where we talked about non-capital punishment. And we weren't entirely sure quite what that meant and said that if anybody knew to get in touch, well, fantastically, one of our listeners has been in touch. So Charlie Ferguson, who is doing her dissertation on the witch trials in Ayrshire, she had been doing some research in the course of doing her dissertation. And she found details of a woman called Agnes Hutchin from Ayr, who was found, quote, half guilty. And what that meant was that she was sentenced to public humiliation, where she was to repent her sins and confess. Then she was stripped naked and brought to the markets and was forced to confess her crimes. And she was then warned that if she continued to, quote, abuse the people, she would be executed as a witch. And Charlie makes a really interesting um, observation here. that She thinks that this is a really great example or horrible example of the humiliation and sex related shame and embarrassment that women endured during the witch trials. Charlie also went on to give us some more fascinating stuff, which is that in Kilwinning, there's a small plaque that a female artist designed to commemorate the witches of North Ayrshire. Bessie Dunlop has a bench in Lynn Glen Del Rye, um, which is dedicated to her. In Ardrossan in Ayrshire, there's a street that's named Witches Lynn, which is thought to be dedicated to the witches as well. So it's interesting. I mean, we've heard from various people about the sort of proliferation of memorials and plaques and unofficial places across Scotland to mark them, which I think really goes to show that there is an interest across the nation for doing something national state monument that would be clear and obvious in Edinburgh, for example. So, Charlie, thanks so much for getting in touch. It's been really brilliant. Claire, can you tell us about our guest for this evening? Yes, I'm really delighted that Julia Campanelli is coming to speak to us today. Julia Campanelli is a Sundance scholar and award-winning screenwriter, director, producer and actress. Her film 116 has screened in over 60 festivals worldwide, 120 towards and premieres on Amazon Autumn 2020. Julia's screenplay, The Paisley Witch Trial, in both pilot and feature versions, is a Stowe Story Lab selection shortlisted on the blacklist, number one on the red list, and has won 10 Best Screenplay Awards. Julia is founder and CEO of Shelter Film, a New York-based independent film company that's dedicated to changing the narrative by creating films by and about women and underrepresented humans. Julia is also the founder and artistic director of Shelter Theatre Group. She has directed and produced 13 stage productions for Shelter Theatre Group, including the critically acclaimed Macbeth on Lower East Side. As an actress, Julia is known for NBC Universal's Dementia 13, Kill the Monsters on Amazon, One Life to Live, 
and 116, a film she wrote, directed and produced, and which is premiering soon on Amazon Prime Video. She appeared as Hecate in the Obie award-winning immersive show Sleep No More. Aside from all those amazing things, one tidbit of information about Julia is that she broke the gender barrier in sports in the US. She became the first girl to play on a boys' soccer team, as she calls it, or football team, as we would call it, when she was 16 years old. She used the law that said you couldn't discriminate against anyone in order to ensure that she was placed on the football team. And I'm delighted to see her team went on to become the league champions the year that they played. Wow. So it's just like Gregory's Girl. She is the original Gregory's Girl, yes. Maybe that's what they really based Gregory's Girl on. (laughs) It was really based in America, but they moved it just to be interesting. Yeah, they moved it from New York City to Cumbernauld. It's the natural place to move it to, I think, (laughs) you know. Well, without any further ado, we're delighted to introduce Julia Campanelli. Julia, welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. Well, hello, and thank you for having me on here. I'm so happy to have found another organization that's as interested in Scotland's witches. I am the founder and CEO of Shelter Film, an independent film company in New York City. And I have an award-winning screenplay that I've written and I'm producing called The Paisley Witch Trial. So, Juliet, we've heard that it's been very well received and we want to speak to you about the screenplay in some detail. Can you first of all tell us what got you interested in the Paisley Witches? I discovered the Paisley Witches when I was researching a role in the New York Obie Award winning production Sleep No More that was created by the London-based theatre company Punchdrunk. Sleep No More was a mashup of Shakespeare's Macbeth, Hitchcock's film Rebecca, and it included, as some of its characters, some of the Paisley witches. Those included in Sleep No More were Margaret Lang, Catherine Campbell, Agnes Naismith, and the little girl who started it all, Christian Shaw. And I found the story of the Paisley witches fascinating, and I wondered why I'd never heard of them before. And I attributed it to being you know, women's history or herstory and, you know, women's stories aren't told as frequently or as often as they should be. So I decided that it would make a very dynamic film and very compelling film. So I started researching, doing a lot of research on the Paisley Witches. And there is quite a lot of research available. Did you research online before? I started online and I got some books. I found a book that was very helpful in my research. The book is called A History of the Witches of Renfrewshire, who were burned on the Gallow Green of Paisley, published by the editor of the Paisley Repository, Jay Miller. And this was a book, it was more put together in the mid-1800s, like a reference, I guess you could say, Uh, This publisher gathered together all of the papers and letters that had been written about the Paisley Witch Trial or the Renfrewshire Witch Trial, the sermons that had been said by the clergy, the testimonies of the, the witnesses at the trials, and as well the confessions at the stake of the Paisley witches just before they were executed. So I found that to be very helpful because it contains eyewitness accounts of exactly what was going on with the little girl, Christian Shaw in particular. And when you started researching, were you already researching for a screenplay or was it the stories of these women 
that made you think, I want to put that into a screenplay? It was the women, because as I was researching, and this is ongoing research that I'm doing on this, because I don't feel like I have the full story. I was researching these women because it is a women's story, and I have almost my entire life been a feminist and been a person who has been breaking barriers that have held women back in history. And I, I find that in history in particular, women's stories have not been told. And when I read about these witches and discovered that there were over 4,000 people executed for witchcraft in Scotland, and they had never been exonerated or pardoned, I thought this film project would be a very good way to get their story told to say their names, and to possibly somehow get them pardoned or exonerated. So one of the goals of my screenplay was to create a platform, one, to get the story told, to say their names, and to also petition the Scottish government for a formal pardon or exoneration of those people who have been wrongly accused of witchcraft. We absolutely hope that that's what comes to pass, and we're really, really delighted that from all the way across the pond, you've taken the interest in the, the Paisley Witch Trials and they have captured your imagination in such a way to create something to see their names, as you say. Your researches weren't only based on paper, though. You've actually been across here yourself, haven't you? Yes, I have. Well, while I was doing my research, I was trying to find specifically about the Paisley Witches, the Renfrewshire Witch Hunt, and I found an organization in Paisley called the Renfrewshire Witch Hunt Trust of 1697. I reached out to them by email and I connected with two women that lead this trust who have been instrumental in my research. They are Liz Gardner and Annette Whitelaw, and they have been extremely helpful in all of my research pointing me in directions who else I, I could contact in Paisley and in Scotland, libraries to go to, where I could do more research. So I decided to make a trip across the pond to visit the locations, to meet these women who have been help, so helpful to me, and to visit the locations that I've already written in the screenplay, and to do more <laughs> research. While I was researching, I made a discovery, and it might be quite controversial, but what I thought was going to be a screenplay about historical persecution of women via witch trials in Scotland became a much bigger story of Scotland's participation in the transatlantic slave trade, which was a complete surprise to me that this one story about this witch trial would have a connection to this other history of Scotland that hasn't gotten a lot of dialogue. I might be getting ahead of myself in the whole story of the witches. Let me start with the beginning with the little girl who started it all. Christian Shaw, 11-year-old girl from a wealthy family, the Shaw family of the Bagaran estate in Erskine. And at the time in 1696, Paisley was plagued by a series of morbid events. There were mysterious drownings, there were murders, there were mutilations, there had been a famine for two years, there was a plague. Christian Shaw's own grandfather had disappeared while crossing a river on horseback, only to be found months later. His body had been moved. Nothing had been disturbed on his body. His clothes were intact. His purse was intact, so it wasn't a robbery, but his right hand and his genitals had been removed. 
And it was assumed that this was some sort of witchcraft or for some black mass. So Paisley was ripe for, you know, they were still had one foot steeped in superstition. And it was just at the beginning of the age of enlightenment when scholars were embracing the concept of science. And the church played a very big role in keeping those superstitions alive. Really, the clergy reinforced the concept of witchcraft. You know, it was preached that you had to believe in the devil because he existed. And that was a reason why you had to listen to the priests and the clergy. But if the devil didn't exist, then there really wouldn't be any reason to have a clergy or a church. So the clergy was self-serving in that respect. So I think a lot of people still embraced the superstitions and the paganism. And as well, the whole concept of the devil and demonology was embraced by King James I. He was obsessed with demonology and wrote a book about it. And the church was still using this book as a guideline, if you will, when dealing with witches. You know, how do you determine someone is a witch and the tests that you can do on them? So I think just at this point in time, there were many factors contributing to what became this last witch hunt in Scotland and the last witch trial in Scotland. Perhaps not the last witch trial, but the last witch hunt in Scotland. And that in itself may be a reason why there was so much documentation on it, because it was the last witch hunt in Scotland. Yeah, because we know, don't we, Zoe, from early times that for the first outbreak of witch trials, there was very, very little information at all. In Scotland just had so many witches. They were just bursting with witches over there. It seems like if you look <laughs> at the, so that good. interactive map that was created of the, the witch hunts and the witch trials, it's just like all over Scotland. Yeah, nobody was free from it. Mm. So you started to tell us about the young girl yes. who was at the heart of the witch trials. Can you tell us briefly the story of the last witch trial? Yes. Christian Shaw, from a wealthy family, the Shaw family, of the Bagaran estate, an estate that had been in their family for 300 years, caught their housemaid, Catherine Campbell, a girl from the Highlands, stealing some milk for herself. And she told her mother, Christian told her mother, and Catherine was promptly fired. She was dismissed. And when she was fired, she cursed Christian three times. May the devil harl your soul through hell. And it was thought that curse and saying the devil's name three times may have summoned the devil. Shortly thereafter, Christian started exhibiting series of fits and convulsions and seizures, vomiting bones and feathers and straw and braids of hair and needles. Horrified, her parents took her to every doctor in Paisley and then also the best doctors in Glasgow, none of whom could find anything physically wrong with her. It was after several months of doctor's visits that the clergy stepped in. The Reverend Brisbane was an authority and opponent of witchcraft, and he decided that there should be a witch hunt and a trial. So they convinced the Privy Council to issue a warrant for this witch hunt to give them, I guess, to authorize them. I don't really know how uh, Scottish law works. But on 19th of January in 1697, 
a warrant from the Privy Council was issued to question, to witness, to record, and to transmit a report before the Council before March 10th of 1697. So during some of her fits, Christian started naming names, named about 30 people who she claimed were witches and were causing her torment. And most of the people that she named were people that she came into contact with. Many of them were disenfranchised social outcasts, vagabond beggars. Of the 30, there were eight in particular who, during the trial, were named as Christian's tormentors. So after Christian named the 30 people, they were arrested. They were tortured for months to compel their confessions. And then five of the people who had been arrested came forward, and they were named as confessors, and they named the Paisley Eight, eight people in particular, as Christian Shaw's tormentors and as witches. And these confessors, they were three children, three siblings, and two elderly sisters. Now, the torture that they experienced for months was sleep deprivation, starvation. They would put lighted candles in between their toes and burn them. They were a little more extreme than just the watching and waking, which was the sleep deprivation. And the witches had their heads shaved because it was thought that witches' hair, women's hair in particular, if they were witches, contained certain powers. So after months of this this type of torture, of course, people would come forward and, and admit, yes, we were witches, and yes, but it wasn't us tormenting Christian. It was these eight people in particular who were doing it. And then they took the confession from Christian Shaw herself. And once the witches were arrested, all of her symptoms stopped magically. So the trial was conducted at the Bogarin estate in the Shaw's house. And there was the commissioners were made up of eight or nine men, all noblemen of the landed gentry. Many of them were relatives of the Shaw family. And there was a jury of nine men, also noblemen and landed gentry. And it was, for most practical purposes, a kangaroo court. It was uh, very biased in the favor of the Shaws. And Christian testified. She named Margaret Lang as her most aggrieved tormentor, Catherine Campbell, Agnes Naismith, Margaret Fulton, John Lindsay at Barlock, John Reed, John and James Lindsay, otherwise known as the Bishop and the Curate. And John and James Lindsay were brothers. They were adult brothers who were known to be practicing witches, which is why they were called the Bishop and the Curate. They were witches of some church. And I have read that some references say that they were children. There were a John and James Lindsay who were children, but these were not the John and James Lindsay who were executed. They were indeed adult men. The others, John Reed was a beggar. John Lindsay at Barlock, I think he may have been a tenant farmer on the Begarin estate, so Christian would have seen him. Margaret Fulton probably had dementia. She talked to the fairies regularly. She was just a town character. She was also a, a widow beggar. Agnes Naismith was a beggar known to Christian Shaw. She regularly stopped by the Shaw's house to ask for alms and to beg for food. 
And Catherine Campbell, as I said, was the housemaid in the Shaw residence. And Margaret Lang, who is the protagonist of my screenplay, was a midwife to rich and poor. She was very pious. She was never without her Bible. She had an illicit past. She had a child out of wedlock, which was a mortal sin in the eyes of the church, and one that she had to keep secret, or else her daughter would become an outcast. A woman's reputation was her only currency at that time. During the trial, four of the accused confessed, but four of them maintained their innocence until the very end. And those four were Margaret Lang, Catherine Campbell, Agnes Naismith, and John Lindsay at Barlock. So they were tried, they were found guilty, they were sentenced to death. And on June 10th of 1697, they were carried through the town in a cart. They were taken to Gallo Green, to the scaffolds where they were garroted and then burned at the stake. And it was, you know, the townspeople came for the execution and it was, the scene was described as one of merriment. And the sheriff deputy uh, dressed up was said to be wearing blue trousers. I mean, it was, you know, almost like a very festive occasion. I think that's because, Zoe, did Julian spoke to us about the idea that people were delighted that they'd exactly. weeded out the devil among Yes, them. yes. Yeah, they caused for celebration, you know, they'd really triumphed over evil and they really saw it in those really kind of binary black and white terms. Because there had been so many morbid events, there were two particular sudden infant deaths there was the Erskine Ferry had been overturned and everyone had drowned. I mean, it was all of the, these events that happened. So they were really looking for something to blame, something to take their worries away. The parents were grieving. They needed to lay, lay blame on somebody or someone. Julia, it's really fascinating hearing what the genesis was with the screenplay. Can you tell us anything about the screenplay or is it all still quite under wrap? Oh, no, I can tell you everything. Oh, great. <laughs> 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 the screenplay, it's, it's been very well received. It's shortlisted on the blacklist, which is known to screenwriters. It's sort of a metric for screenwriters. It's sort of the golden seal of screenwriting, unproduced screenplays. It's been number one on the red list, which is another metric. It's been number one on the red list for the last year and has won Stowe Story Lab uh, selection, a blacklist lab selection, and has won 10 best screenplay awards. As I said, I'm the writer and the producer, would like to direct it. However, not having directed a feature yet, I've directed short films and music videos. It might be hard for me to convince investors <laughs> to um, invest into this, but that is to be determined. And it's a historical horror feature in the tone of The Witch, The Exorcist, and Twelve Years a Slave. It's about a 17th century midwife with an illicit past who's accused of witchcraft when a child she delivered becomes demonically possessed in the true untold story of the last witch hunt in Scotland. That sounds fantastic. It's sure to be a massive hit with viewers because it's something that people are drawn to. It's also the human story, which sounds brilliant. It sounds really great what you've written there. Juliet, you've told us about the idea of it. Explain to us it's also in pre-production. Is that right? Well, in, in COVID pre-production, I have, when I went over to Scotland it, two years ago in 2018, the end of 2018. I was there representing a film that I had acted in at Braindance in London. And then I went up to Scotland. And I, as I said, I visited the locations that I had written about, the Paisley Abbey, 
Gallo Green. I met with Annette Whitelaw and Liz Gardner of the Renfrewshire Witch Hunt Trust. The ladies of the Renfrewshire Witch Hunt Trust sent me, recommended to me to go to the Mitchell Library in Glasgow. And I had contacted them first by email. And they said, yes, we have a lot of documentation on Christian Shaw's family and Bagaran estate. And we'll just put some documents aside for you when you get here. Just let us know. So I went and they said, oh, well, you know, it's in the archival section. There's nobody here today. Can you come back tomorrow? I did. And when I came back, I said, well, what exactly is in the archives? And they said, there's a manuscript that was written by John Shaw on Christian Shaw's torment. So Christian Shaw's father kept a journal of her entire torment, and it was available for me to look at. And I said, well, oh my, go- my goodness, it's from, dated from 1697. I said, is it under glass? Will I be able to see it? And they said, yes, yes, sure, you'll be able to see it. I said, will I be able to hold it? Do I need gloves? You know, I was, this is 80 years older than the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> they said, no, just make sure your hands are clean. Wow. So because it was in the archival section, I wasn't allowed to take anything in with me except paper and pencil. So I got this document, this very old leather bound document and the very fancy script written. And it was very difficult to read. And at the back of it, it had listed the confessions at the stake of Margaret Lang and several of the other witches. And I was, you know, having done several years of research on this and having written a screenplay about it with Margaret Lang as my protagonist, you can imagine my excitement at reading this. I I had goosebumps. I was, my hands were shaking. And as I finished reading it and I closed the manuscript, literally at the moment I closed the manuscript, half the ceiling lights went out. And I thought, and I looked around and there were a few other people sitting in this section and nobody moved and nobody even noticed it. And I thought, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, it's a sign. It's a sign from the, from the grave. It's Margaret Lang telling me to write the story. And I'm freaking out internally. Uh-huh. And then after about five minutes, the librarian stood up and started walking towards me. And I thought, oh, she knows this has happened before. She knows, she knows she's going to come in and confirm it. And she walked behind me and then she started waving her arms up and down. And then the lights came back on. And she said, oh, they're motion detected. You couldn't, the lights went out. Nobody moved for a few minutes. And I thought, no, it was Margaret Lang telling me to write this story. I will swear to it. Yes. We will believe you. We will believe you. It wasn't the motion sensors. So That's a great story. That's fantastic. So will you be coming back to see us again, Julia? I was planning to come back, but then the pandemic got in the way. Yeah. Because I wanted to do some more research. I mentioned before that I discovered there was connection between this particular witch trial and Scotland's transatlantic slave trade. And the five confessants that came forward at the trial all claimed that they had been witches. They all claimed that they had met the devil and that the devil was a black man. Now, some people have said to me, well, that just means, you know, he had a swarthy complexion. Now, as a woman who lives in a country, the United States, with our own slavery history, when someone says it's a black man, you have to believe them. Because I think to deny that would reinforce the erasure of slavery history. And we, as countries, in the West have to own up to it and we have to recognize it and we have to admit to it. 
So then that led me on another branch of research. At the time, I wasn't aware that Scotland was involved in slavery. That's when I discovered the denial. It Winnie us, the book that was written about it, and that Scotland had plantations in the West Indies. The first plantation was Barbados in 1655. My research on this continues, and I've been following other people on Twitter, Sir Jeffrey Palmer. He's been doing a lot of research about the slavery history. So really, the screenplay is about the intersectionality of the persecution of women and the persecution of, of enslaved people in Scotland. That's so interesting, Julia. We spoke before to Professor Goodyear, you obviously listened to him, and he was explaining that when people said it was a black man, that he didn't really know what it meant. They thought they were driving maybe some physical attribute like their hair. Yeah. But what your researchers have shown is that even in those early times, there was a link to slave trade. Did that mean that there were people who were slaves who were brought over to Scotland then? Yes, there were. There are other academics whose lectures I've listened to. There were between 70 and 90 enslaved Africans in Scotland in the 17th and 18th century. Even though slavery was not recognized in slavery, plantation owners were allowed to bring their enslaved Africans to Scotland for the purposes of apprenticing them in trades to increase their value. And then later on, it became a sort of status symbol to have an African or enslaved African as a servant in your household in Scotland. And as you know, Glasgow was a big shipping port. Many of plantation owners lived there, and the proceeds for many of the plantations built Glasgow University. And I think, I don't know about Edinburgh, but I know Glasgow University profited from from the plantations. And there are streets in Glasgow named Cotton Street. So there is a whole history there that there isn't a national dialogue about. And I'm hoping that if this film gets made, it will open up a dialogue so that reparations, accountability, exonerations can begin. Well, what you've explained to me there has certainly broadened my understanding of things. And it's a a really interesting perspective on Scotland's history when we're looking at the witch trials that I simply hadn't considered before. So that's definitely something that in the future we'll want to research in a big way. Julia, can I simply say I am so delighted that you came to speak to us today. The interest that you have in the Scottish witches is appreciated very much by us here over in Scotland. And I'm absolutely delighted that your screenplay is getting all the plaudits that it no doubt deserves because that means hopefully one day in Scotland we will be able to have a premiere of your screenplay and I very, very much hope that we can all be there supporting you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I am determined to have this film made in Scotland. I have already scouted locations. I already have my locations. That's what I meant by pre-production. So I've been doing it in COVID. I did scout locations when I was there. And I continued to scout locations this year, and I think I've secured all of my shooting locations in and around Paisley and also in Dumfries. I've found an estate there that I think will serve my purpose as well. And I would like to just give that back to the people of Paisley who have helped me so much with my research. 
to have a production take place there in Paisley, in and around Paisley, would do so much to um, highlight what happened there. Because the Renfrewshire Witch Hunt Trust has done so much to advocate for what happened to these Paisley witches who were persecuted and to advocate and educate about what happened there. And I think Paisley is very invested in that history. Up until maybe 2012 or 2014, they did yearly reenactments of the trial and the Gallo Green up to the execution with people from the community, which I think is really lovely that they would be so invested in the story. Yeah, invested and engaged. And that's why we're really hoping that we can continue to engage people Scotland-wide in order to try and encourage people to join the campaign for a pardon. And we just want to thank you for highlighting it and thank you for seeing the women's names. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you today, Julia. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. And I have to say that I love your podcast. I just enjoy so much what everyone has to say on it. And, you know, as I said, one of the goals was to get all of the Scottish witches, 84% of whom were women, to get them officially pardoned because it matters. The truth matters so much and saying their names matters so much. Thanks so much for listening to episode nine of the Witches of Scotland podcast. As ever, please remember to tell people about the podcast, to rate us, to share it with people, because the more people that know about it, the better a chance we have of being successful with the campaign. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Like a child. Bye. <laughs>